Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted November 11, 2016, we speak with WPI fellow Jonathan Crystal about foreign policy and national security fallout from the stunning election of Donald J. Trump as president after one of the most contentious, controversial, crude, and confusing campaigns in American political history. Crystal's post-elections post on the website blog is headlined, The Sky Fell. We'll also point out top features in the new WPJ fall issue, cover theme, History's Ghosts. But first, a brief overview of election 2016. It was Brexit American style. As some experts originally suspected, but despite most 11th hour polls and prognostications, the same working class and rural sense of being bypassed by globalized economics and by major party elites helped Trump win at least 289 electoral college votes. So did ethical questions still shadowing the far more experienced Hillary Clinton, former first lady, New York senator, and secretary of state, although she won nearly 220,000 more popular votes. Even some top Trump aides were privately surprised at the significant Clinton edge in campaign funds, organization, surrogates, celebrities, and demographics, especially a rising tide of minority voters offended by many Trump applause lines, could not keep him from taking key states, including Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Early signs of a deep dive on Wall Street quickly turned around the next day after Trump pledged to be, quote, president for all the people and embark on a project of national growth and renewal, with most leaders of the again-to-be GOP-controlled Congress announcing they'd be aboard, including previously standoffish House Speaker Paul Ryan. Trump also praised Clinton, who admitted the loss was painful and, quote, will be for a long time. She said her supporters owe the president-elect an open mind and a chance to lead, but also urged them to do all we can to advance the values we hold dear. And mainly peaceful protests against Trump's presidency sprang up around the country. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. I want to tell the world community that while we will always put America's interests first, we will deal fairly with everyone, with everyone. All people and all other nations. We will seek common ground, not hostility, partnership, not conflict. At the same time, we will get along with all other nations willing to get along with us. We will be. We'll have great relationships. We expect to have great, great relationships. His words were well chosen and delivered with apparent sincerity. But real estate and reality TV star Donald Trump's presidential victory nevertheless left supporters of Hillary Clinton in tears, even some Republicans mystified, many world leaders and their people fearful of what Trump's White House future would mean for them. Russian President Vladimir Putin was among the first heads of state to express congratulations and optimism about future cooperation, though some critics charged that candidate Trump had already gotten help enough from Kremlin-inspired hacking of Democratic Party, Clinton campaign, and foundation email. 
how their mutual admiration and Trump's often hazy and contradictory views on world affairs may impact future U.S. foreign policy is the subject of a new post on the World Policy Institute website blog by WPI fellow Jonathan Crystal, headlined The Sky Fell, and we talked about it for this podcast. Jonathan Crystal, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the threat posed by Trump, or at least by his rhetoric, to the complex mechanism of international trade that his voters see swallowing their jobs, in particular the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. You say blocking or undermining it will be a big win for China, which ironically is the president-elect's economic enemy number one. In what way and at what cost to Americans? Well, one big irony about this as an issue for Trump and his supporters is that his supporters tend to have jobs. So the fear that these agreements are taking their jobs is a bit overblown, I think. But leaving that aside, uh, you know, the Trump rhetoric is that Asian countries and China are stealing our jobs and that manufacturing is fleeing the country and going to these places and it's the result of what he calls terrible free trade agreements now the reality of this on the subject of trade is that american manufacturing jobs have been lost but they've been lost largely to uh, automation they've also moved from um, rust belt states with strong union protections to Uh, southern right-to-work states that also happen to be um, safe red states. So they're not as much of an issue there. Uh, The other thing about this that I don't think Trump understands, and and I don't give him too much credit for understanding much, is that TPP um, has economic benefit, but moreover, it is a way to tie the Pacific countries to the United States, into the kind of post-World War II international order led by the U.S. as a way to contain China, uh, to um, take the first step towards a greater integration of the Southeast Asian countries with the U.S., uh, and with the hope that in the future China will reform uh, its own economy, although its economy is doing pretty well, uh, will, or at least will reform its behavior in a way that will enable it to join the TPP regime uh, and and to bring kind of China into the fold. So by undermining it, and and it's it's this is over. I mean, the TPP is not going to pass if if you have one or two policies about which you've been consistent, as Trump has been with free trade. Uh, I'm not sure how he goes back from it. So I think this is this is a this this deal is, is dead. And uh, uh, China, when you combine that with the president of the Philippines uh, reorienting himself towards there, this is a, a big win. It is a blow towards the integration of Southeast Asia with the United States and with the West Coast of, of South America. Um, and, and it's, it's uh, very unfortunate. Now, the other thing, of course, Trump has said is that he will also raise tariffs on China. It's one of the few specific policies that he has, has actually talked about. And one thing that the uh, raising of tariffs on imports from China will do 
or withdrawing from any other free trade agreements will do is increase the cost of goods for the average American consumer. So you're going to take people who actually have jobs already and you're going to make things much more expensive for them uh, uh, as a result of some sort of fight against a, a, a mythical uh, job loss. Trump also has threatened to withdraw from NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement, which he's called the worst trade deal ever made. What do you see as its greatest achievements and the impact of a U.S. withdrawal? Well, I'll take the, the last part of the question first. I think that the danger of a withdrawal uh, from any long-standing U.S. commitment, be it trade, be it defense, uh, will be to show the world that the United States cannot be trusted to maintain its agreements, to follow through with what it says it will do, and to uh, work as a constructive partner uh, with its allies, uh, friends, and, and frenemies. So I think that there is a greater danger uh, to withdrawing from, from NAFTA than just any sort of economic impact. Now, NAFTA, I think, on the whole, um, is in some sense, a little bit of a wash and probably a, a slight net uh, favorable uh, uh, result. It has cost the United States some jobs. Some jobs did leave the U.S. to, to Mexico. It has also uh, created jobs for the U.S. and opening Mexico as a, a major trading partner. And it has, uh, over time, resulted in an increased standard of living in Mexico that ironically has kept illegal immigration down from Mexico. And so if, if Trump's major uh, platform is a, an anti-immigration xenophobic platform combined with protectionism, well, if you have the protectionism and you harm these other states' economies, the, it, it doesn't really mesh with the, uh, uh, an anti-immigrant policy, because you're going to have an increase in, in people trying to cross the border. Uh, of course, if there's a, a, a giant wall there, maybe that's, maybe that's all part of the plan. But it is a uh, dangerous and destructive thing, I think, to try to untangle yourself from uh, long-standing uh, alliances and agreements, uh, even if they might not have been the best decision to make at the time, and even if they could have been negotiated better. In that same vein, Trump has dismissed the core concept of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, talked for and against the Iran nuclear deal, and said the spread of atomic weapons is inevitable anyway. Say more about the consequences of his election on that front, especially for South Korea, Japan, Saudi Arabia. This is a, a extraordinarily uh, dangerous consequence of the Trump election. If you are in Seoul and you have a new president who has said um, on camera many times um, that the U.S. military should be uh, uh, some sort of um, mafia enforcement where you, you pay up or, or we don't protect you, and said that maybe South Korea should get nuclear weapons, well, what is your tolerance for risk? Can you really risk that he doesn't mean what he says? Are you really going to take the risk that in the event of a North Korean attack, the United States will actually be there for you? Or are you going to develop your own nuclear deterrent? Uh, if I were in Seoul, I would withdraw from the NPT 
and I would pursue my own nuclear deterrent. The same goes for Japan, which would, of course, also um, change its constitution uh, from a, a Pacific stance to one that will allow it to do more um, militarily. Uh, I think that was probably going to happen anyway. I think that's probably a near certainty now. And, you know, in the case of Japan and South Korea, I think it's probably inevitable. Now, of course, these are uh, allies. They are advanced industrial countries. They will have excellent safeguards in place. I don't think there's a tremendous danger of their nuclear weapons somehow uh, negatively affecting us. Now, the same it, it, it worries me a bit more in the case of Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia, Trump has also said, you know, why not? Why not have them get nuclear weapons? And again, if there is a general global concern that the U.S. will concern or celebration, depending on who you are, that the U.S. is not going to be there to follow through on any sort of defense commitments, particularly in the case of Saudi Arabia, where we don't even have a formal commitment and it's a, almost a an unspoken hope, then I also think, well, what choice do you have but to develop your own nuclear deterrent? In the case of Saudi Arabia, they will get it from Pakistan. It's largely assumed that Saudi Arabia funded the Pakistani nuclear program with uh, the quid pro quo that they will get access to it if they need it, uh, it is a, which was a very smart policy, I think, for them. And there's a case where, you know, for now, the safeguards are probably okay, but the the having nuclear materials and nuclear weapons in Saudi Arabia is, is not something I think anyone should be thrilled about. But the larger concern, even with South Korea and Japan, is the destruction of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which has worked reasonably well for 46 years. And it's not that there have, have not been states that have acquired nuclear weapons since 1970 when the NPT went into effect. But it has been an extraordinarily small number uh, outside of the NPT. And uh, it is probably the best mechanism we have to ensure that other states go nuclear. And when um, states see that this has fallen apart, uh, I fear the slow, slow to moderately paced proliferation that reverses a global trend of reduction in nuclear weapons that has, has existed since the end of the Cold War. And I think that it's something that, that we all should be concerned about. Lower on the threat scale are confrontations with conventional weapons. Trump has questioned the utility of NATO uh, and threatened that continued U.S. participation there might demand greater financial contributions from our allies, what he calls their fair share, you call protection money. For one thing, you cite the contribution already made by a little country like Estonia. Right. Well, so there are, I think, a couple of issues here with, with NATO. One is that uh, it is true that most of the NATO states uh, do not pay uh, the amount that they are supposed to pay. Now, should we make uh, our commitment to NATO contingent on that? I'm not so sure because it is not a zero-sum game. We gain from uh, these states being in NATO. Um, in, in other ways. Um, but, but, you know, it would be nice if, if the European allies did increase their defense budget. But when you look at the front line of who has the most to lose from a Trump presidency, I would say in the top 
four of those. One would be uh, South Korea, and the other three would be uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. And Estonia is a country that has met its obligations to NATO and on a per capita basis has the highest casualty rate of any NATO ally, including the United States, uh, in the um, almost, I guess, 15 years that we've been in Afghanistan. Uh, they have been an extremely close partner of the U.S. And I cannot imagine what they are thinking and feeling in Tallinn, Estonia uh, today. Um, Newt Gingrich, who could very well end up as Trump's Secretary of State, referred to Tallinn as a suburb of St. Petersburg. Now that stretches the definition of suburb, I think. But that is a extraordinarily dangerous rhetoric. The idea that we would not follow through on what is perhaps the most um, long-term and, and steadfast defense alliance that the United States has is something that I think would, would tear apart Europe. It might cost the Baltic states their sovereignty. And you can, you can smart people can have very uh, uh, different opinions about whether NATO should have expanded to the Baltic states. There are people I respect tremendously who say it should not have. But it did. There's no reason to relitigate that. Uh, it happened, and we are committed to them. Whether or not that was a good idea um, or not is, is irrelevant at this point. Um, but the global signal to a state like Taiwan, to other places that are counting on the U.S., uh, I think is, is a disaster. The other thing about NATO, uh, two more points about this, is other than originally being designed to counter the Soviet Union, it also is part of a system to integrate Germany with uh, the rest of Western Europe. And what you see in these right-wing populist movements uh, that are being sponsored by Russia uh, and that the uh, refugee crisis is uh, uh, fueling uh, the, the, the support for is, you know, what happens when, if uh, Angela Merkel is defeated next year and a right-wing government takes place in Germany at the same time that NATO is falling apart and uh, you have the Brexit process and a, a, a very shaky Europe. And, you know, the, I, it's been so long since we've thought of any of these things um, as real possibilities. I mean, you know, we think of the dissolution of, of a somewhat united Europe as something unthinkable. But some of these things are unthinkable only because we've never had to think about it before. And uh, uh, the Trump uh, catastrophe, I think, uh, makes, will force us to think about things that we really never thought we would have to think about again. And, of course, a factor you haven't mentioned is the uh, cross-border aggressiveness of uh, the current uh, leader of Russia, uh, Vladimir Putin, with whom uh, Trump shares uh, something of a mutual admiration society. Yes, and, and you know, Putin has, uh, and this is, is a, not an original quote of mine, but, you know, he has played a, a weak hand with extreme skill. And I think that's exactly right. I, I forget the exact like, origin of that quote. But, you know, he has been pushing against uh, the boundaries of Eastern Europe uh, and cyber attacks on Estonia, cross-border kidnappings in Estonia, the uh, close uh, flyovers of 
ships in the Baltic Sea, uh, violating Finland's and NATO's airspace um, all along the border. And, you know, Trump will see this and say, well, what do we care about this? You know, as long as Putin uh, uh, praises me, he must be great, since Trump's view is that if you say something good about him, you're a great person, and if you say something bad, you're a bad person. Now, the case of the Ukraine, um, you know, I, I, Trump has already said in the campaign that um, Crimea, he, he might recognize Russia's annexation of Crimea, I think it's probably a near certainty that the sanctions on Russia will be um, lifted. And if you are Vladimir Putin, I mean, you've had a great 2016. You get Brexit, you get uh, a, a surge of right-wing populism across Europe, you get this flow of refugees in Syria. One thing that I think is overlooked in Syria is that while Russia does share, um, Russia has no love of ISIS and definitely a top priority of keeping Assad in power. It has an interest in doing that and creating a flow of refugees into Europe to destabilize the European government. And it's worked incredibly well. You wonder why has Russia attacked um, some of the uh, more notable civilian targets in Syria? Well, this is why. And it has worked uh, tremendously well. And the the best thing that could have happened uh, is the election of Donald Trump. Trump spotlighted a brigade of retired senior military officers supporting him. How do you see serving senior brass dealing with some of his threatened tactics and strategies, interventionist in some cases, uh, isolationist in others? It's uh, a a great question, and it's uh, something that I am uh, quite concerned about, and I think that we won't really know the answer uh, over time, because I think that a lot of the military leadership will wait and see what policies he actually pursues. Uh, Because to some extent, we don't know, because he has taken both sides of of almost every issue. Uh, Foreign policy is the one thing where there have been a few things he's been uh, consistent about. You know, my fear um, has not been about his illegal, potential illegal orders, uh, which military officers can refuse to follow. But I am not sure that many of the current leaders will want to be the person who turns out the lights um, from U.S. bases in Southeast Asia or Eastern Europe. And my fear will be that that there will be a slow and steady resignation of the top military leadership. But on the the intervention versus isolation question, that's something I think um, none of us really know what he's going to do. One argument that I have heard from international audiences in favor of Trump over the last few months is this idea that, oh, he's not an interventionist. Well, I'm not sure how, you know, bomb the crap out of them and take their oil is a non-interventionist position. And what happens when uh, a foreign leader insults him? What happens when there's some sort of personal feud Uh, I think the idea that he will not intervene with the full force and might of the U.S. military uh, is wishful thinking. Um, Of course, aggression these days does not mean only old-fashioned invasions. Talk about the impact on terrorism and anti-terrorism by what Trump has already threatened or said about ISIS abroad and Muslims at home. Well, you know, the the people, one group, 
uh, cheering the victory of Trump is, is, is ISIS. An ISIS spokesman said and was reported in Foreign Affairs and uh, in other uh, journals and, and press a few months ago that uh, ISIS was praying, praying that America should be delivered to Trump. And I think it, it makes a lot of sense. One um, reason for this is that uh, his rhetoric and the, fa- the very fact that he was elected shows that the narrative that many terrorist groups use of the United States as an anti-Islamic uh, aggressive state that per- singles out one religion and mounts some sort of crusade against it uh, is true. Uh, it's actually, in some ways, it's going to be hard to argue with that uh, based on Trump's rhetoric. Then you take our domestic... But, but I don't worry as much about them... I do not think that Trump's election will increase the atta- any uh, level of attacks from abroad to the U.S. because ISIS has been trying to attack us here anyway, and his election is not going to change that. No matter what, that was going to uh, happen. My fear is that the domestic Muslim population, which is not radical at all, which is well integrated into society, uh, unlike in some of the Western European countries, is going to be singled out by, particularly if there's a Giuliani Justice Department, is going to be singled out, is going to have um, surveillance in their neighborhood, something that Ted Cruz has said, um, and I'm sure uh, Giuliani will, will get behind, and is going to be made to feel apart and uh, not part of, uh, quote-unquote, the real America. And, so, and, and, you know, 99.9% of people will not become radicalized by that because most people uh, are, are decent people. But the potential for domestic radicalization as a result of Trump's domestic policies, um, I think, is very real. And as a, a resident of New York City, it is without a doubt a, a long-term concern of mine in a Trump presidency. I think it is almost inevitable that there will be a significant increase in uh, uh, terrorist attacks in the United States. Now, that doesn't mean there's going to be tons of attacks all the time. I think we, are, have a, we have a very safe city, we have a very safe country right now, despite the Trump uh, rhetoric. So even if it becomes much less safe, I think we will still be very safe and we will still be insulated from some of the problems that, that Europe has had. But I think it is a, a, a serious concern that Trump has no policies to address and, and the, his policies will be what, what creates the problem. How do you see Trump dealing with the maddening conflict of interest we have with some of our longtime allies? For example, Saudi Arabia, still a major source of extremist school funding and earlier of 9-11 skyjackers, or increasingly anti-democratic Turkey, which has both helped and hindered the fight against ISIS, or the Philippines, whose current leader, as you note, can be even more vulgar in public than Trump in private, even about a U.S. president. This is a a very good and a very difficult question. I think that there are some problems, like the Turkish problem and and the long-term relationship with Saudi Arabia, that are extremely complicated and involve a tremendous number of actors and require a very deft hand um, to deal with. And I think that Obama has not been successful 
uh, in dealing with those particular states um, at all. And Obama is someone who is uh, intelligent and thoughtful and surrounded by other intelligent, thoughtful people with whom I might disagree on policies, uh, particularly on foreign policy, but at least have the uh, mental capacity and temperament to deal with these problems. I am quite afraid. I think I, I don't think anyone would really make the case that Trump is capable of deep strategic thinking and understanding um, any of the problems of the region with any real depth. And I think if, if people have the hope that he will surround himself with advisors that are able to guide him through these problems, I think it is also a bit of wishful thinking. Even if he were to get on board uh, A-list or B-plus list or B-list advisors on these things, the idea that he will listen to them on significant policy decisions really flies in the face of everything we've seen uh, this whole election. Uh, this is someone whose own campaign had to you know, hide his Twitter account to keep him from saying uh, crazy things at the end of the election. But I, I think that these are issues that have to be handled carefully, and I don't, I, I just don't think that uh, it, it worries me tremendously. I think that Trump won't understand why we have to work with Saudi Arabia. I think it would be great if we could distance ourselves from Saudi Arabia. And I hope that in the long run, we actually are able to do that. But I also think that if you move too quickly, if you just withdraw U.S. support from the region without providing some sort of narrative about what is it that we want, what are U.S. goals in the Middle East? What, what do we hope for the region? How will we help them achieve it? If we just withdraw or just attack, I mean, who knows what it will be with Trump? That creates a tremendous amount of uncertainty and a tremendous amount of anxiety. And if you're Saudi Arabia in particular, but not just Saudi Arabia, uh, you are going to have to start taking risks and making plans for a variety of contingencies and potentially starting to act on your own uh, uh, without, without consulting with the United States because you don't, know, you, you don't really know what you're going to get when you deal with us. And I think there's a lot of potential um, for danger there. And, you know, I, I might sound very pessimistic through all of this, and that's because I am very pessimistic about, <laughs> about all of it. Uh, it, is, it is, I am aware of it, and it is, um, it, it is it, and I just think that's the, the reality of the situation in which we find ourselves. But what do you think about some of the names being floated for a Trump cabinet? Newt Gingrich as Secretary of State, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani as Attorney General, uh, one of his former retired generals or admirals as Defense Secretary, or the, do you think they're mostly placeholders while he thinks about more likely nominees? What are you hearing? I think that the, the ones that you mentioned are actually probably the most likely um, candidates. I think that it is very likely that uh, Giuliani will end up as the attorney general. I mean, the other name that had, of course, been mentioned for the last year is Chris Christie. But Chris Christie seems to have evolved from a potential vice president and cabinet secretary to effectively uh, a gopher and uh, object of ridicule, uh, even from the candidate himself. 
So um, maybe in, if, if Trump has a sense of humor, Christie will end up as the Secretary of Transportation. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think that Giuliani is probably a little more likely as Attorney General. I think that I had been assuming that Gingrich would end up as Secretary of State. I've also heard Jeff Sessions talked about for that position. Um, it's kind of a, a deeply de- depressing situation in which I think Sessions might actually be the better choice. Um, but but that, that says nothing about Sessions and really just about the situation we find ourselves. I think it's extremely likely that uh, General Flynn, uh, who is, I think, most well-known for his um, lock, lock her up chance at the uh, Republican convention, will end up as either the Secretary of Defense or the National Security Advisor. And the reason why I throw in National Security Advisor, even though I think the conventional wisdom seems to be defense, is I would hope that some Republicans join with the Democrats to block him from the Secretary of Defense. This is someone who was literally on the Russian payroll as a paid commentator on RT, the Russian propaganda, uh, English language propaganda channel. And the idea that you would get that that person could get through a Senate confirmation as Secretary of Defense would be deeply troubling. But if the transition people are smart to avoid that problem, he could end up as National Security Advisor, which does not require Senate confirmation. The reason why I don't think these people are placeholders is that Trump you know, one, one complaint that I have had about Hillary Clinton for a long time is that she surrounds herself with loyalists uh, and yes men and yes women. But, uh, and I think, uh, and I, I think that's true. But, you know, she at least has a wide, um, knows a lot of people, was a ser- is a serious person and, and has a lot of contacts and connections and knowledge about who to ask to do what. Trump, I think, will surround himself with, with yes men, maybe one or two uh, token yes women, uh, and doesn't really have any sort of base of support from the, from the establishment. And people use the establishment as a pejorative, but the establishment people are the people who actually know how these major bureaucracies run. They're the people with the overseas contacts. They're the people with the relationships that you need to uh, steer the ship of state. And I think he will, he will stick with the people uh, with whom he's comfortable. And when you get to other positions, because I think there are not too many of those people, and you start looking elsewhere, um, you run into the problem of um, many people who will see working for a Trump administration as a reputational risk and will think, well, how will I get a job in New York or Boston or even Washington outside of government? when the Trump administration is over, if I'm tied uh, to Donald Trump. And I think that's, that's a legitimate fear. I think it's possible you'll have a few, um, a few kind of senior hands that have worked for other Republican administrations, like maybe Richard Haas from Council on Foreign Relations, uh, in a position, because uh, someone like that would have the reputation um, to survive a Trump presidency. But I also think that the idea, again, the idea that, and I think some of that will go in hoping that they can moderate Trump's policies or teach Trump something and help lead him to the right decision. And while I do think Trump is easily manipulated, I also think the, uh, to hope that he's just going to um, do what you want him to do, again, kind of flies in, in the face, I think, of what, of what we've seen.
both Hillary Clinton and President Obama have stressed that the world won't end because of this election. You don't seem so sure. What's your overall assessment of the Trump fallout, a word I use advisedly but with some trepidation? Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, I think, a, a good choice of words. I mean, I am quite certain that we will all survive the next four years, but um, but I don't think, you know, I, I, if you say, is, what are the chances of a major war involving the United States uh, and Russia um, in the next four years? I don't think the odds are zero. I don't think they're more than 3%. But, you know, 3% is, is quite a bit too high. I think that we're very likely uh, to be living in a significantly more dangerous world. Um, it is, I think, an extremely dangerous time. It fills me with a tremendous, tremendous fear and, and sadness um, because I think it was so easily avoidable. And, of course, the great irony of Trump, one of many, is that I think that he, you know, if, if Bernie Sanders had been elected, I think he probably also might have ceded, um, you know, maybe ceded parts of Eastern Europe to Russia, but we would have survived it. The irony of Trump is he'll cede everything to Russia and China and get us all killed in the process. Um, and, and I, I, to have, uh, uh, such a, a narcissistic, um, ignoramus, who thinks he knows everything, in control of 1,500 uh, deployed nuclear warheads that he, that he alone has control over, uh, I think is, is, is legitimately terrifying. And I think that we um, have no reason to fear that we're one day we're going to wake up and be living in some sort of... Um, dystopia, the likes of which Trump has been describing all along the campaign trail. But these things happen gradually, and I am uh, very concerned about um, what the U.S. looks like four years from now, uh, assuming that we're, we're still here, and I assume we will be, but, you know, it's, it's, it's just sad. Jonathan Crystal, thank you. Thank you for having me. World Policy Institute fellow Jonathan Crystal is also a senior fellow at the Bard College Center for Civic Engagement. His post-election post on the World Policy website blog is headlined, The Sky Fell. Featured in the New World Policy Journal Fall Issue, History's Ghosts, you'll find articles on what lessons from history keep being forgotten, on silencing the echoes of Tiananmen, and on the painful legacy of Canada's residential Indian schools. And listen next week when our podcast will feature Inutech Holm Olsen, first Greenland native posted at the Danish embassy in Washington to represent the interests of his autonomous island nation, largest in the world, as it seeks greater political and economic development in an era of increasing globalization and environmental consideration. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>